Good morning. Today's reading is from Exodus 10, verses 21 through 29. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the heavens, that there be darkness upon the land of Egypt, a darkness one can feel. And Moses stretched out his hand over the heavens, and there was pitch dark in all the land of Egypt three days. No one saw his fellow, and no one rose from where he was three days, but all the Israelites had light in their dwelling places. And Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go worship the Lord. Only your sheep and your cattle will be set aside. Your little ones too may go with you. And Moses said, You yourself you yourself too shall provide us sacrifices and burnt offerings that, may, that we may do them to the Lord our God. And our livestock too shall go with us. Not a hoof shall remain. For it for from it we shall take to worship the Lord our God, and we ourselves cannot know with what we shall worship the Lord our God until we come there. And the Lord toughened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not want to send them off. And Pharaoh said to him, Go away from me, watch yourself. Do not again see my face, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, Rightly you have spoken, I will not see your face again. This is the word of God. This time we have a special treat. Um, I will not be preaching, but one of our elders of ACC will be preaching and delivering the word of God to us today. Um, I have to introduce him because he's usually at the first service, and um, some of you may not be familiar with those at the first service, but who will be coming up is a Dr. Joe Kikasola. He is a ruling elder of our church, and um, his family leads us in the first worship service, so you know, I didn't really have to introduce him there, but if you haven't been there, I encourage you to come, um, be part of that worship service, and also get to see Joe and Linnea lead us in a time of great worship. Second service is great worship too, but first worship, second worship, we're one family, we're one church, it is something to experience together. So at this time, it is my privilege to introduce um, ruling elder Joe Kikasola to give us God's holy word. Thank you, Jeffrey. Good morning. Let's pray. Lord of heaven and earth, Lord of the day and of the night, Lord of our past, our present, and our future, we want to walk as children of the light. Save us from our darkness, our darkness. And when we find that we're in a darkness that we didn't make, that doesn't seem to come from us. Help us to trust you with all that we have and to wait patiently for your light. Enlighten our minds and our hearts to receive your word today because your word is truth. In the name of Jesus Christ, the light, the world, amen. Have you ever played the game Two Truths and a Lie? So here's how it works if you don't know. I tell you three things about myself, and one of them is a lie. The other are truths. Now, my special weapon in this game, I'm just going to divulge it right now, is to tell you I'm a former firefighter, right? Nobody ever believes that one. And they have good reason not to believe that because even though I was a firefighter, I was a particularly bad one. I was certified by the state of Georgia for two years in rural fire defense, 
which is pretty much as exciting as it sounds. Um, and I have no stories of heroism. I did not charge into any particularly dangerous situations. Nothing really scary to share with you. Um, and uh, I didn't even show particular commitment to the job, which is, you know, not in the favor of those I was sworn to protect, I'm afraid. And that's because in the beginning I was a frightened fireman. You see, within my first full-scale training exercise, I had a harrowing experience. We were told to go into the smokehouse. Smokehouses, in this case, was an abandoned concrete building built by the Air Force on top of a mountain many years ago as a relay station. So there was nothing around, no lights, no nothing. It was just a concrete bunker with rooms in it. And strategically, eight oil drums or so filled with burning straw about 10 o'clock at night. They pack you with full uh, gear and a helmet and a breathing apparatus that weighs about 20, 30 pounds on your back. And they say, crawl in there. And here's how you crawl. Crawl along the wall, because you're not going to see much. And you just keep crawling until you get to a door. And then go through the door and keep crawling and always keep your hand on the wall. And eventually, you're going to come out where you started. You're going to come to a, you're never going to get stuck in there, right, if you can keep crawling. Now, they say all this because what most people don't know until they've experienced it is a structure fire. The scariest thing for a fireman is that you really can't see the hand in front of your face. It's that black. There's so much smoke and so much chaos, and your mind starts to play tricks on you in that situation. You really start to doubt your own body, your own solidity. You start to doubt everything that you know. And about three minutes into the drill, it started to feel like it was a great idea for me to stop and start screaming and pounding on those walls I'd been feeling. And I knew this was completely irrational. I'd been in this building before. I knew exactly how many rooms there were. I had a good idea where I was going, but I couldn't see anything. And not only couldn't I see anything, I couldn't see myself. And I was really starting to doubt everything that I knew about this place and about myself. I started to panic. It was ridiculous. I wasn't dying yet. I tried to stop and compose myself, but panic set in. This is totally irrational. Just work it out, I said. But the freaking out, screaming part of me said, you don't even want to be a fireman. Why are you doing this? And the freak out part of me won. I'm ashamed to say, here in public for the very first time, well, second time today, I picked up and I ran in the dark, stumbling, tripping, running along the wall until I got to that entrance I had just come in. And my superiors who sent me and were standing there, one of whom is now a lifelong friend, I'm happy to say, but the look on his face was utter contempt and disappointment. Because I hadn't saved anyone and I'd barely saved myself. And a fireman I should never be, it would seem. Now I was disappointed in myself as well because, not because I didn't know everything I needed to know, but because my body, my very self, the deepest part of myself wasn't gonna cooperate with what I knew. I couldn't just sit there in the dark, calm down, and work it out. And I'll never forget how that felt, how dark that darkness was, and how everything I knew didn't matter, and how the feeling overrode everything, every truth I was telling myself. It didn't matter how true it was. 
This was the darkness that you can feel. Now, if we had space in this bulletin, I would retitle the sermon, Fear of the Dark, Holy, Holy Fear in the Dark, and the Wisdom to Know the Difference. So that's the structure of my talk today, Fear of the Dark. Now, as Pastor Choi described last week, the plagues are a process of decreation, or kind of God coming in and taking apart for all to see his creation. Now, why would he do that? Well, it's a complicated answer, but one reason is that he can. And that was something we had all taken for granted in this story, right? That God could withdraw. We could take an active approach in the Scriptures, like all things theological. We could say God is smiting the Egyptian for four centuries of tormenting his people, and that would be true. It's an active judgment. But that's not all of it. It's also true, and perhaps a little easier and helpful for us to understand today, that maybe God was just stepping back. Maybe he was just pulling himself out of the equation. Why? Because for four centuries, he had been there. For four centuries, God's people had dwelt among the Egyptians, and they showed no interest in him whatsoever. And what's worse, since they were winning the game of power, they thought they'd enslave his people. What happens when God withdraws? The Bible wisely does not present God as somebody we can easily size up or put in a box. If you think he's a God of judgment, that might be true. You're right, but only partially. If you think he's, just an, if you think he's a God of love, but that's it, you're right, but only partially. If you think you know what judgment or what love, for that matter, is, you've probably put yourself in a box of your own making. And that's a box that God throughout our lives continues to break apart. And he continues to give us back faith, hope, and love, rebuilt, renewed, and more true than it was before. And that's what I believe we should be thinking about today. Aren't you glad that God isn't in your box? It is difficult to swallow some things about God in this story. I'm not going to pretend it's not. And you shouldn't. There are things about this story that everything in, in you should resist. But it's one thing to wrestle with God, and it is another thing to judge Him. And that may be the difference. You don't want a God of your own making. What you're called to is to hold all the things we might know about God in tension without ever feeling we've got, like we've got a comprehensive grip on Him. And that frustration that you feel when you think that God is not adding up or not making sense, that's okay. That's normal because that's human. That's exactly what you should feel sometimes. But if you do nothing to balance that, with all the other resources, all the other truths, all the other comforts that he has given you, then you're failing the Christian life, and you're giving up on everything he's given you to learn more of what true faith, hope, and love in the eternal, almighty God is. That road is hard, but it is nothing less than what we, every Christian, you and me, called to. If you've decided you're going to judge God, 
you've gone way farther down that road than you should. You've bypassed repentance. You've bypassed the family of God, the sacraments. You've bypassed all of these things to put yourself not just as judge, but the short hop from judge of God is God. You have proclaimed yourself in a way, God. And that is Pharaoh's mistake. And he had reason for this because, you see, in Egyptian theology, that's exactly what he was told from the time he was a young child. In Egyptian theology, the Pharaoh is descended directly from the most supreme god of the many gods the Egyptians had. There was one chief god, and Pharaoh was one of his direct sons. So you can imagine how he felt when this guy Moses showed up. Didn't we remember him from the court a couple years ago? He went away, he went crazy, he whatever, he came back. Now he's telling me I need to let all these people go, and his God is bigger than me. You can imagine. It went against everything he'd ever been taught and everything he believed about himself. And frankly, he had no real reason to disbelieve it because he'd been so successful. Success is a tough crutch to get off of. That Israel had their own problems. They had trouble believing that Yahweh could exist or be faithful or be kind because it had been 430 years of slavery. Do you realize? Put that in our own terms. That's the late Renaissance. That's way before America was founded. 430 years. So long that they had completely forgotten all of their rituals and the very shape of their faith had been taken from them. Moses says this explicitly. We don't know how many animals or how we're going to do it when we get to the place, wherever that is, that God tells us to worship him, however we do that. There was a sense that it had all been taken from them and they were very disillusioned. And this is why they couldn't be happy at all when Moses killed that Egyptian and started something like a righteous insurrection. But as we talked about a few weeks ago, it wasn't all that righteous. And the Israelites weren't really thinking in terms of right and wrong. They were thinking in terms of power and survival. And the only one who had power right now was Pharaoh, or so it seemed. In Egypt, the strongest ultimately win. And Moses, after the burning bush, went to Pharaoh, poses the proposition. Pharaoh says, we're going to make the work harder. And Moses collapses there in the firehouse, right, so to speak. He says, Lord, why did you ever send me? You haven't delivered your people at all. Pharaoh's culture saw him as divine, and for us to fully understand the plagues and fully understand what's going on here, I think, and why God would do what he's doing, and I can't claim to know all the reasons why, but here's a hint. We need to know something about the Egyptian religion. We need to know something about their theology. What was it? How was it that they saw the world? When Moses encountered the burning bush, remember discussing that a few weeks ago, God said as a proof, throw down your staff, and the staff became what? A snake. Thank you. It became a snake, and then it turned back to a staff again. That's pretty miraculous, and Moses ran away from the snake, right? Why did Moses run away? It seemed a little cartoonish, right? Why, what, 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 right? Well, here's the thing. Moses was raised in Pharaoh's court, and there was a god in the, in the shape of a snake, and that god was also a son of the Most High God in Egyptian theology. That god's name, the god, the snake god, was Apophis, and he was the god of chaos, of non-being of non-existence. In an Egyptian culture, that was even worse than death, because death 
was kind of hedged by reincarnation and any various other beliefs, okay? Death wasn't the worst thing. Not existing was the worst thing. Chaos was the worst thing. So, when Moses is asked to throw down that staff, he sees the worst thing he could have ever imagined. Everything he had been taught to fear was there in his staff. And then it became a staff again, his staff, the power harnessed in his staff. And he would have recognized that because in ancient Egypt, the staff of the Pharaoh had a spitting cobra on top of it. And it was a sign to all that there was only one person among you who could contain and harness and direct and protect you from the power of chaos. And that was the son of God, literally, the Pharaoh. And so Moses was being sent as a Pharaoh among Pharaohs, but more than that, a Pharaoh over a Pharaoh, serving the God over all other gods, wielding chaos, directed, controlled, contained in his hand. Chaos and non-being, that was the true horror. The Egyptian priests had rituals about snakes. Once a year, they would take snakes of various kinds and cut them up and set them on fire, contain them in various ways, all as a ritual to protect the entire Egyptian people from, rich, from evil for a whole year. It was called, literally, the burning of chaos. The banish, sorry, the ban banishing of chaos. And every single night, they had a ritual that involved the effigy of a snake being broken, being contained, being dissected. And that was to protect them against the night. Because here's the thing, the snake wasn't just a snake, it was a dark snake. In all of the Egyptian literature, Apophis, the god of chaos, the snake, was associated with darkness because he was descended in the opposite of the god of light. The chief god in Egyptian theology was the sun. Every pyramid, every structure, every tiny little hovel or home was built with the sun in mind. It's light, it's comfort, it's heat, it's patterns. They literally worshipped the sun. His name was Ra. It was more properly pronounced Ray. I had an Egyptologist tell me. Ray is the more proper prince. So Ray, the god Ray, was the chief god in Egyptian theology. And he had a couple sons. One of them was Pharaoh and one of them was Apophis. And Apophis was always fighting with dad. It was the son of order against chaos itself symbolized by darkness. So you can see how this ritual every night where they were banishing the darkness and the hopes, the reassurance that the sun would reappear, that was more than just being scared of the dark. All of Egypt, no doubt, throughout the first eight plagues had cried out to the sun for deliverance. And here at the ninth plague, he not only didn't answer, he didn't show up. And all the priests and all the theology and all the, what they thought they knew had failed them. It could be that Apophis was back on the throne and it was an inconceivable situation. Unless, of course, the Israelites' God might be true. So the rumor had it. So they had a right to be frightened. The truth is this, life, existence itself, really is sheer grace. 
We've done nothing to earn it, nothing to guarantee it. Not a moment of our lives is owed to us. Not a moment. What's more, life and existence, everything that's good is tied to directly to God's being. The Apostle Paul says this in the book of Acts, and he's quoting a pagan poet, which is really interesting. He's saying, here's something we can agree on. In God, in him, we live and move and have our being. Have our being. It's God. In him, we have our being. Without him, we have no being. We have a purpose. We have chaos. In Colossians, for in him all things were created, in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created for him, through him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And remember the prophet Daniel before another king, a wicked king, Belshazzar, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. You've praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which don't see, hear, or understand. But God, in whose hand are your life breath and your ways in his hand. Let me say that again. In God, in whose your hand. This is a direct translation, so it's a little awkward, but catch the truth. The God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways. You've not glorified. God can withdraw whenever he wishes, and we're fools to think otherwise. And if he does, he takes everything he is with him. God is love, and if he leaves, love will leave you as well. If you've been loved or gifted anything, it will disappear from you, because it really wasn't yours exactly. It was tied to his presence, which you and I and all of us so often take for granted. We think of it rightly as something normal being taken away, and that seems sort of cruel, but it's only normal because God has made it so. And what if we looked at it a different way? What if existence or sight or light or the ability to breathe or to apprehend anything, what if it's all just a gift to you? What if it's a gift you don't deserve? As the philosopher Leibniz once famously wrote dramatically, why is there not nothing why is there anything at all? Existence itself is sheer gratuity. The first act of creation was let there be light, and there was light. But this ninth plague takes us right back to that moment. We have regressed to the very beginning, and what was before the light? Chaos, void, formlessness. That's what the book of Genesis says, and do not mistake it, every Israelite recognized it. Because God is withdrawing from Egypt. We don't know what happens after Apophis, before the earth was formed, as time runs backwards. All that's good and orderly and delightful and comforting is pulling away along with their divine source, and that's why you feel it. And this is why the feeling is so important. It's more than blindness, much, much more than blindness. Some of us are experiencing blindness or have experienced blindness. The famous author, Helen Keller, she was blind and deaf from a very young age. You know, she went on to live an amazing life of great joy and fulfillment. And of course she had struggles, but she never wrote about it that way. They used to say of her that she could tell you who was entering the room and when. And what's more, she could tell you if she knew them or didn't know them. And if she knew them, she'd tell you who they were. If she didn't know who they were, she'd tell you whether it was a man or a woman, short or tall, heavy or skinny. Why? Because her refined sense of feeling in her 
feet could feel the vibrations on the floor. And she did it again and again and again. But this is different. This isn't just blindness. This is everything being taken from you. The end of the world. My children love the Harry Potter books, and so do I. Probably the best description in Harry Potter, I think, is the one that's the scariest. It's the one of the Dementors and the Prisoner of Azkaban. They're among the foulest creatures that walk this earth. They infest the darkest, filthiest places. They glory in decay and despair. They drain peace, hope, and happiness right out of the air around them. And even muggles feel their presence, though they can't see them. Get too near a Dementor and every good feeling, every happy memory will be sucked right out of you. If it can, the Dementor will feed on you long enough to reduce you to something like itself, soulless and evil, and you'll be left with nothing but the worst experiences of your life. Rowling said the inspiration for the Dementors was after she narrowly escaped her own bout with crippling chronic depression. Depression is a serious thing, and we're gonna return to depression, among other things. It is not to be trivialized. It is to be taken serious in every way. But I'll tell you this, this is not that. This is worse. God had not left J.K. Rowling, but God was leaving Egypt. And Pharaoh was left utterly with himself, and it was terrifying. But he checked himself. Presumably, he could light a lamp. Presumably, he could see something because he told Moses at the end, you know, don't, don't let me see your face again. There's all this picture of seeing. But of course, by this point, lighting lamps was small, small comfort compared to how they saw darkness. But Pharaoh checked himself and he said, okay, I'm alive. I'm breathing. I'm still the son of the sun. His dynasty, best he could tell, was still intact because he could maybe, by the light of the lamp, look across the room and see his future, his firstborn son sitting there, his heir. And perhaps he said to himself, I'll get through this. I'm going to let the Israelites go because they're a pain, but I'm not going to let them get what they want. I'm not going to let them think their God won. I can't let them sacrifice. The animals stay. Do you think Pharaoh needed animals? Don't mistake what's happening here. It's pride at its truest, most brazen sense. It's doing the right thing for all the wrong reasons. The Lord toughened Pharaoh's heart. Now, there's, that's the phrase. Other translations say hardened. I looked for another one. That's, that's all I got. There's no way around the difficulty of this phrase. There are many, many, many volumes written on this phrase. And there are parts like this in the Bible where we struggle theologically because it doesn't seem like the God we know. How could God possibly destine or toughen someone's heart and condemn them for an action they couldn't ostensibly have avoided? We don't know the answer, and I don't have an answer for you today. But I want you to put this in the context of the great God. Remember the boxes that God is breaking. Throughout the scripture, the message is this, freedom and responsibility, freedom and responsibility, over and over and over again. You are free and you are responsible. You are free and you are responsible. And every now and then you get a glimpse, but it's bigger than that. I'm going to let you in on something. 
that you can't fully understand, and I'm not going to explain, but it's bigger. And that bigger, that part that's bigger, seems really disturbing here. But you need to understand that that's the very thing that allowed God, after four centuries, to come in and rescue his people. And it's the very power that allows him centuries later to come back and establish the most resilient church in Christendom, which to this day is in the land of Egypt. It is that power, that sovereignty, that allowed him to call Jesus out of Egypt. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. There are instances where Pharaoh hardens his heart. There are instances where God hardens Pharaoh's heart. There are verses where it says both happened. The simplistic way of looking at that is, say, oh, it's just a contradiction. But remember, we've got thousands of years of people thinking about this, and that verse is still there. Nobody's hiding the dirty laundry. It's there. It's our job to live with the contradictions, knowing that if God is exactly who he says he is, there's going to be things we don't understand, and you don't want it any other way. And there's going to be things that you don't like, and that's okay. But there's a difference if those things you don't like are the occasion for you to repent, to say, God, I want to know more of you and I want to know truly. I want to know myself honestly. That is how you use those truths. If Yahweh is not sovereign, if he's not in control of everything, if there's not some way, some sense that we don't understand, that he's not at least somehow pressing his power or holding power over all the good and evil that happens in the world, then chaos is on the throne. That is what the scripture seems to say. We don't want to focus on the throne, and he's not. God's made the mystery clear. He's sovereign over all. He's powerful. He's without sin. He's just. He's merciful. He's loving. He's eternal. I don't even know how all those things fit together, but then you get to the kicker. Sin, brokenness, just, injustice, and chaos, those are our responsibility. Things are not as they should be, but God knows this, and he holds power over what seems to be all this chaos. We don't react well to this. I often shake my fist at God and say, couldn't you be more reasonable? I'm never going to understand it fully, but here's how I've come to live in it, to accept this truth through experience, the discipline of repentance and opening my eyes to grace, and I wish I did it perfectly, and I wish I did it every day, but it helps when I do. In repentance, I know deep down I'm part of this problem. I do want justice. I have to have justice, just like the Israelites have to have justice. It is unacceptable for a people to be enslaved. It is unacceptable, and we must not accept it. We need justice. But if I'm going to prosecute God for not bringing about justice on my timetable, then I'm signing my own death sentence. God is slow, Pastor Jeffrey reminded us, and for good reason. Sensitivity to grace. When I open my eyes, when I really look for the grace, I discover I'm breathing. I discover I love people, and they love me, oh, so imperfectly but they're there. They haven't left me yet. When I really start looking, I see the grace and I'm swimming in it. If you're here, if you're breathing, if anything exists, and if anyone loves you, if 
anyone loves you. If there's any hope or any light, God has not completely left the room. Perhaps he's completely there in a way you can't yet perceive. Egypt thought the God of Israel must be weak because four centuries had gone by and they were still on top. And the Israelites thought surely God had left. But the plagues were for Israel as much as they were for Egypt. God's, Israel said, God, you've left us. And he said, I've done nothing of this sort, but do you want to see what happens when I do? It's beyond any terror you can imagine. Look at all that I have been protecting you from. And what's more, I'm now going to make you a people. I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That is what he says to them again and again and again. And the plagues were signs, to experiences more than signs, to prepare them for the road, of the road ahead. He said, I've been here all along. I'm the Lord of the light and the darkness. Chaos itself is swallowed up by me, and the gods of Egypt kneel before me. I have been here on my terms, not yours. And now watch what I do. And as darkness swallowed up the whole world, except the crappy little ghetto in which they lived, it had to be the worst part of town. It had to be where saint slaves for four centuries had lived and everybody dumped their garbage. Except in the disowned, unworthy place, the people who were slaves and unwanted, the least of these, God once again turned all that power dynamic on his head. That is where the light was. And as the darkness swallowed up the rest, they saw the grace of God that they had forgotten to believe in. They saw the slavery machine, that grinding, malicious, brutal economy, grind to a halt because nobody dared leave the house. God was pursuing Israel through these plagues, they were terror and judgment for one and a sign of unstoppable love to the other. Both are true. Are you in this story? Are you feeling defeated and abandoned and powerless and discouraged? On the other hand, are you feeling strong? Are you feeling haughty or proud, like you got it together? Are you feeling self-righteous, angry with God that he hasn't done something that he ought to do? All of the above, you're a lot like me. And what I need is holy fear in the dark. My time is short, so I'm going to have to push ahead with this a bit, but it's so very important. This Lent, we're in the time of Lent. This is a time for you to reflect, to repent and take stock. And this is where you sit with the light that you have and you're quiet. And you look around and you say, what light do I have? What grace do I have? Am I breathing? Does anyone love me? However imperfectly. Do I have anything that I didn't deserve? Don't curse the darkness or desperately clutch for fire as if you can make everything right on your own. You're not the Lord of light. You're not. You're not the Lord of the dark but you know the one who is and is mindful of you. 
And you say, but what if I'm a Christian and I love the light, but there's nothing but darkness around me and I'm not getting what Israel got? It's not light in my tent. The whole city's dark. I struggle with de depression or loneliness or happiness. And I know I don't deserve anything. I know I'm guilty. But you know what? Half the problems I face, I didn't bring them on me. I didn't ask to be abused by that guy or my parents to die. I didn't ask for this illness or this economy. I didn't ask for my people to be enslaved. I didn't ask for this oppression. What am I to do with all of that darkness? That's a good question. The ancient mystic St. John of the Cross called that, that moment where the joy of salvation is gone and you're just not feeling it and it doesn't seem like it's coming back, but you're hanging on by a fingernail. He says that's the dark night of the soul. And he wrote a whole book about it because he was very attentive to his own spiritual life. And in short, this is what he says. He says it's a time for brutal honesty. You need to be honest with God about how you feel about him. You need to be honest with yourself about how you feel about him. But most importantly, you need to be prepared for God to be honest with you about yourself. And you haven't really walked the dark night of the soul properly as a Christian, as a mature Christian, as you should, as you must, without the support and the resources that he's given you. If you try to tackle the dark night of the soul without the prayer, without the family, without the sacraments, without the honesty, without the reading of the word, even when it doesn't make sense to you, even when it rings hollow, if you don't walk the dark night of the soul, mindful of your blessings and sitting with the light you have, you will end up in the land of Apophis. You'll end up in the land of the snake, the land of chaos. God asks us to walk this path we don't know why, but here are some reasons, none of them sufficient in themselves, but someday we're told they will be all sufficient. When you feel your body vying with your mind in a blind panic, as I did in that firehouse, cry out for grace to endure. Say the only truth you can manage. I wait on the Lord of all to rescue me. I believe him to be the Lord over the light and the dark. Do not discount faith, hope, and love, but prepare, be prepared for your ideas of those things to be changed. We have a way of ossifying them, of, of almost commercializing them. They're little, they're little packaged treats for us, right, by the time we're done with them, and they've been stripped of all the glory that they really have. Faith, hope, and love are huge. They're directly at the heart of God's character, and we, our concepts can't contain them. He'll remake them through us. Love will return to us in full as long as we breathe. He's still near us. He promises his grace to be sufficient for us. Because what's more, he breathed. He went through the dark night of the soul. He experienced the terrors of the night. And those three days of darkness in Egypt repeat themselves in three hours of utter darkness around the cross. The threat of chaos, of non-existence, of meaninglessness hung in the air. And for all of that, even death cannot separate us for the love of God because of that. And when we find ourselves on that cross, we know our fellowship is in suffering with the one who ultimately bore our suffering. And the darkness can't measure up to his darkness. 
and it endows our darkness with purpose and meaning and fellowship with Him. How do you respond to the dark night of the soul? It's not a time for a lot of theology. It's a time for waiting. But you don't wait like you wait for a bus. You wait with a wrestling, striving, strenuous waiting. How did Jacob wrestle the angel? He hung on to him, and he held him until daybreak, until morning, until the sun came up. And he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And God blessed him. And he touched his hip, and he was limp, limping the rest of his life. And he said, I give you this so that you know you wrestled with God and you lived. Hang on to God with all that you have, with all the strength. You strive, you struggle, you strain. It pulls at the joints. It hurts like crazy. But the sun's coming, and you're seeking not a verdict, not a victory, but a blessing. St. John of the Cross said, I'm without support, but well supported. Though in the pitch darkness with no ray, entirely I am burned away. Because the ultimate wrestling, what you find when you're holding God there, is that you're really wrestling in yourself. You're really wrestling with who you are and all the ways that you've limited God and mistaken reality and mistaken everything. And if you're making use of the resources he's given you, he will bring you through with the truth on the other side. And like me in the firehouse, you'll emerge because I got to take that test again. I had to because I couldn't be a fireman without it. And they made fun of me going in, but I came out the other side. And why? Because I wasn't scared now. All the feelings came back, but I recognized them. I took the deep breath, and I trusted my training, and I made it through trained and ready to help other people. And that might be why you're going through the dark night of the soul. So you can recognize what it's like when God withdraws and you can help others who are in the same place. And should you reemerge from it, you'll have scars, but you'll be stronger and better and more mature and more sure of his goodness. In closing, one of the things that the dark night prepares us for is death. And I'm very sad to tell you that Edwin Alejandro, one of our friends, dear friends here, member of the church, is on the edge of death. We don't know if he will make it. We don't know if he will die or if he will live. But things are grave. You should know that. He wants us to pray, and he's in a wrestling match. He's in a struggle for life. But you know what? He's not telling us that. What he's telling us that he wants, what he really, really, really wants is an extra measure of faith. He wants to trust. As far as I can see, he's trusting with all he has. We have to wrestle. We're wrestling, we're praying, we're saying, Lord, don't take him from us. We think of all the sadness that will occur if he does. But we can't control all of that. Here's the thing we have to remember. He might die, but he's not going to die in the way we're familiar with the way we think we understand. He's loved of God. Edwin is precious. Jesus marched to the cross, scorning at shame, enduring the darkness so that he could seize Edwin for himself and never release him to anyone else. 
God's gift of life cannot be contained by our paltry boundaries, our conceptions of life and death. We know nothing of these things. They are so much larger than our experience. Edwin's going to avoid death in the fullest because Jesus conquered it. He crushed the serpent under his feet. No evening sacrifices to ward off the dark for us. That's all gone. Edwin's going to live even if he dies because he's going to wake up to the morning that never sets. In him, there's no darkness at all. The psalmist cries out, let the bones you have broken rejoice. You, God, your fault, your doing. That's not judging. That's worshiping in the most painful and true way knows how. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. You could have done another way maybe. Couldn't you have found a way not to break the bone? But let the bones that you broke rejoice. It takes faith to do that. It takes faith to believe that. But you know what takes more faith? is to believe that God's in the bone-mending business. In fact, God's going to give you new bones. That's what the whole Ezekiel passage is about, raising up a people from the dust. We can't imagine what that will be like, but it's going to happen. We're going to have to see the eyes of faith for that. The most appropriate closing is Psalm 30, and this is our prayer. So I ask you, as I, as I read it, to bow your heads, but recognize in this, everything's true here. There's wrestling with God. There's promise from God. There's a bit of confusion and frustration, and there's a lot of faith. This is for Edwin and for all of us, and I ask you to pray unceasingly for him this week. Let's go to the Lord. Psalm 30. I will extol you, O Lord, for you've drawn me up and you've not let my foes rejoice over me. O oh Lord, my God, I cry to you for help, and you've healed me. O oh Lord, you brought me up, my soul, from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O oh, you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. His anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I'll never be moved. By your favor, O oh Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, and I was dismayed. To you, O oh Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O oh Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my helper. You have turned... For me, my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. And, O oh Lord my God, I will give thanks to you. <laughs>